Good morning and welcome to Savior. We're back today picking up in the second half of Colossians 1. And the question that we've been asking ourselves as we've been going through this book, or as we've just started this book, is what kind of church does God want us to be? What kind of church does God want us to be? Uh, assume we're all on the same basic theological gospel truths, right? Assume we have the, the major doctrine all lined up and correct and stuff. Uh, the remaining question is what priorities should we have as a church, right? Not just what doctrine should we have, but what priority should we have? And the answer to that uh, appears in Colossians, and, uh, and the Apostle Paul gives it to us, uh, not as a list of, of separate, discrete priorities, but as a single one that affects every aspect of church, of worship, of, uh, of the life of a believer. Ultimately, the Apostle Paul, in writing to the Colossians, roots everything to the single, unyielding, non-negotiable idea that Jesus must be the center and the source and the reason and the goal for everything that the church does. It must be a Christ-centered church. That's the, the landing point of this letter to the Colossians. And it, it, uh, when you say like a, a Christ-centered church, it sounds like that could be just in relation to the sermons, that the sermons have to be Christ-centered and stuff. It sounds like um, that's all the the Bible study stuff. But um, but there's there's far more to it than that. The, the, the church does a lot more. And there's a lot of things that the church does that has nothing to do with sermons and Bible studies, right? You can have bowling events and sports events. You can have meals together with people. You can have photography ministry or website and all that stuff. And, you, you know, like it's not like every single one of those, the only thing you can take a picture of is Jesus. It's not that, right? It's not that uh, every everything that you do has to be a, a Bible study on Jesus. That's not what we're saying. But the intention behind each one of these ministries, the intention behind the whole operation of the church is to point people to Jesus and to connect them to a deeper relationship with him and with his people. That's, uh, that's the idea, to have them experience and learn more of what Jesus is like. Um, catalog everything that churches do, right? Think about, uh, think about how uh, when we have a church service, what, what happens on a Sunday? There's prayer, uh, there's preaching. There's um, serving and leading, there's fellowship and relationships, right? And there are missions. There are lots of different aspects to church. All of those can be done very professionally. All of those can be very polished and, and, and put on very well. Uh, they can be very well resourced, um, equipped with a lot of, of, of gear and books and stuff like that. But all of them are meant to point to Jesus. And when they don't do that, something is dysfunctional in the church, Last week, we looked at Colossians 1, verses 1 through 14, and it was just a simple idea, the, the intro to the letter, uh, showing to us Christ-centered prayer. And if you just examine how the Apostle Paul prays for the Colossians or any of the other churches that he writes to in Ephesus or in Philippi or uh, anywhere else, when he, when he prays for these churches, it is always for their holiness, not for their happiness. His priority is their holiness, not their happiness. He prays for people that he doesn't even know. He prays for their growth and, uh, and, and for the advancement of the kingdom. He prays for that kind of stuff. He doesn't just pray for people who are struggling. He doesn't pray for people who, who are in trouble and stuff. He prays for even the churches that are doing well, like this church in Colossae. He, uh, he's never met them. They're, do, they're doing well. He, there's a great testimony moving out about them. And yet still, he's compelled to pray with great joy and eagerness. That, uh, that they would grow even more and that they would advance even more and be strengthened even more and know Jesus even more. He prays for them to be like Jesus more and more. And even for himself being an apostle, uh, you know, he, that's, that's his goal. 
And he says in Philippians 3, he says, like, I haven't obtained all this already, right? I, I, want, I want to give everything else up. It's like, it's garbage to me so that I can know Christ. And I haven't obtained it all yet, but I press on. He dedicates himself to pray for people, um, you know, in, in a way where he, he'll set aside time. It's not like he's just praying for, uh, for things when he's driving or when he's, you know, doing his work or when he's on the toilet or something like that. It's not that he's consolidating his time all the time. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you pray without ceasing. That's kind of an idea that he has in 1 Thessalonians 5. But he dedicates time to pray for people. He, he consecrates a set-apart time as a discipline and a devotion because it's so important to him. And he asks God to bless them only insofar as the blessings would amount to them becoming more like Christ. And he asks at times for God to remove their struggles only insofar as that would serve for them to worship Christ more effectively. But his, his end all purpose in praying for people isn't so that they'll be happier and that life would be easier and more convenient. His, his whole purpose behind it is that they would be holier, that they would be more like Jesus. And he trusts God to answer with a yes or a no to everything he prays because God knows how whatever blessing or, uh, or struggle, etc., how it will result. And Paul just uh, trusts God with that. Well, today we move on from the subject of, of Christ-centered prayer uh, and we go to this other part of the church, and this is the more, uh, the more familiar part of the church, which is the preaching part of the church. Um, we're talking today not about Christ-centered prayer, but we're going to talk about Christ-centered truth. Christ-centered truth. It's, uh, that can apply to the preaching, and that's most directly applied to the preaching, but it's not limited to that. It could be the Bible studies. It could be any kind of teaching, uh, a teaching function, or it can be any just general conversation in which two believers are talking about uh, about what does this mean in the Bible? Where, where is it going and stuff? Now, if you if if, if we want to be the church that God wants us to be, there must be Christ-centered truth in our teaching. There must be this uh, this connectedness that anchors people to the Lord, so that they get to know Jesus. If you have a if you have a sermon or a Bible study and people walk away just knowing theology better, but they don't know Jesus better, we have failed. Sermons should never simply be a, a moral correction to the way people are living. Unbelievers can do that. They could write self-help booklets and, and things like that. Every sermon has to point the hearer back to the reality of Jesus. Someone who, who doesn't know Jesus Christ, when they hear a sermon, must be confronted with the truth of his reality and his centrality and his supremacy in all, in all that, that is, all, uh, all that's in creation, all that's in the church, all that's in you. Very rarely, a sermon can, can get away with not mentioning Jesus. I mean, you, at best, if you ever have a sermon that, that can do that, it might be one that is so preliminary and fundamental that it's just talking about first asserting the existence of God or the reliability of the Bible. Just fundamental things so that now you can understand the reality of Jesus. But you can't have a moral correction. You can't have a moral principle. You can't have some kind of divine heavenly lesson that isn't connected to him. He is the center of everything. Everything spirates out from him. If you examine the teaching of the Bible, the authors always draw every principle and every application from Jesus. Right? The whole New Testament is built that way. The Old Testament anticipates that, and the New Testament expresses it. He is central to the teaching of the church because he is supreme over any other person or virtue or concept or action. And we'll see that today. Um, we're going to be looking at verses 15 to 23 the Christ-centered truth 
that should characterize every church sermon or every, every church Bible study. Uh, it's the most distinguishing part of this letter, and it sets it apart. This, this little passage here sets this letter apart from any of Paul's other letters in the New Testament, right? He wrote 13 books of the New Testament. This is one of them. And, uh, and, and this little section here is, is so memorable. It's, the, uh, and the pa- it's memorable because of, of this passage. This whole letter kind of beams out a little bit because of this portion. It is the most brilliant, impressive, and august description of Jesus Christ. And, uh, and it demonstrates his relationship to the world and to the church and to you as an individual. If you've read Ephesians... And if you've, if you've read Ephesians and Colossians, you'll kind of realize that they're very similar. Colossians is kind of like a discount Ephesians. Um, however, each one has its own little remarkable moments. Ephesians kind of has, in the beginning, it has this part in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that says you're saved by grace, not by works. It's the gift of God, right? Uh, that's like the, that's this landmark passage in Ephesians where we say we need that. We need to hold on to that. And Colossians has this portion here in verses 15 to, to 20, really, which, is, which gives you this big thing on Jesus. It's this discreet and dedicated moment to the central truth of the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. So, if you're taking notes, we're going to move it in, in, in three stages here, right? Jesus is supreme over creation. Jesus is supreme over the church. And then Jesus is supreme over you. Those are our three movements. So now you kind of get an idea of the structure we're going with. Let's start with the first idea. Jesus is supreme over creation. That's going to be in verses 15 to 17. This is what it says. He, meaning Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, when you read a passage like this, you have to deal with the fact, uh, with the fact you know, this, this little truism that relates to us. And that is just the observation that we make a small deal about Jesus. By human nature, even in the church, we make a small deal about Jesus. We don't really talk about him much, except maybe to other Christians. Right? How much do we talk about the stuff that we love? The sports or movies or music or fashion or, you know, food, etc. How much do we talk about that? How many times do we volunteer that as a subject of conversation or steer a conversation into those directions? And then how many times do we actually want to talk about Jesus? There's, there's just a, an, an embarrassing admission we have to make, that we make a small deal of him. A lot of times, uh, when, when I ask people, you know, how did you come to faith? How did you, how did you uh, get saved? The testimony is a description of how they came to believe in God, or a description of how they be, be, uh, started to trust the Bible. And sometimes, Jesus is just completely omitted from the whole story. We have this, uh, this way of thinking that, you know, I'm, well, because I believe in God, because I believe in the Bible, and then you just kind of assume Jesus is included in there. But if I said, like, how did you get married? And you just talked about, like, well, this is how I went through adolescence, and, and you know, and this is how I came out of pu- puberty, but you never talked about your actual relationship with your spouse, I would be concerned, right? If you talked about the events of how you planned the wedding and stuff, but you never talked about how you actually fell in love with your spouse, I would be concerned, 
We live lives that imitate people in the world. We look at these icons and celebrities. We look at influencers and we think, I want to be like that person. We look at characters in fiction and we want to be like that person. We have TV shows and movies. Not often do we tell people, you know, especially if they're not believers, not often do we tell unbelievers, I want to be like Jesus. I want to figure out how he would handle himself in a situation like this and what he would want me to do. We're not, if, if we're plainly honest, we're not attracted to his poverty. We'd rather be rich. We're not attracted to his humility. We'd rather be proud. We're not attracted to his servanthood. We'd rather rule. We're not attracted to his meekness. We'd rather be powerful. We're not interested in his reconciliation. We'd rather be invincible. Someone that no one would want to mess with. We make a small deal about Jesus, and yet the Apostle Paul comes out at, at this point, guns a-blazing, and he's not quiet about this. He's not shy about it. He makes a big deal about this. He makes a huge deal about Jesus and says that everything is by him, through him, and for him. Everything is about him. Everything is connected to him. And if it's not, there's something wrong with it. To him, Jesus is the definition of reality. Everything is about Jesus. I'm going to take you on a tour of a few other verses where he just kind of writes on stuff like this. Look at Philippians 1. Uh, he says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Right? To live is Christ. That's, that's how big of a deal he is. It's like that's just life is in Jesus. Living is about Jesus. Then he says later in the book, in chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I count everything a loss uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Right? For his sake, I suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. That's the thing that he wants. That's the thing that he's after. Right? That's his goal. That's his definition. Look at Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? I don't live anymore. Christ lives in me. The, the actual me, me, I was crucified with Christ. Now he lives in me and the life I live in, uh, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Later on in that book, in chapter 6, verse 14, he says, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says, I don't care about the world. I don't care about any of that. I'm dead to the world. The world is dead to me. The only thing I will ever be proud of, the only thing I'll ever brag about, the only thing I will boast in is the cross of Jesus Christ. This was not a small deal to him. This was not something that he just kind of included every once in a while when he was talking to other church people who were mature enough to be interested. Paul doesn't separate his church life from his work or his school or his home. Instead, he, he, he brings this focus in. There's such a centrality to Jesus in everything he says. Jesus is the reason and the goal and the worth of his life. Now, think about what, what's, what's written here in Colossians 1, right? In verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. That's, what, what, what a statement, right? The fact that Jesus is the exact image of God is important uh, because God himself, if you understand, God himself is unseen. He's invisible, right? Uh, first, first Timothy 1.17 says he's, he's invisible. Uh, first Timothy um, 6.16 says that he dwells in, in like unapproachable light and no one has ever seen him. 
So you have these moments where the Apostle Paul says, like, yeah, no one ever sees God. No one, no one can see God. He's invisible. He's immaterial. He's not, he's not corporeal. He's not made of matter because he's not made of created, tangible object things. God is invisible. And then he, he makes this, this, this completely surprising statement where he says, Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. How does something invisible have an image? What Paul's doing is he's saying like, this is what, it, like if, if you ever wanted to be able to look at God, here he is, right? God doesn't have like an actual literal face and, and hands and, and feet and stuff. He's eternally existed that way. And then one day God, who exists in three persons, decided to become a human being took on flesh. That's not actually who he is. It's not that he started to exist when he was, when he was physically conceived. It's, he eternally existed, and then he took on flesh. What a concept that God, the invisible God, would become physical. How does something invisible have an image? Well, it decides to become flesh. The only way we could try to look at God was, uh, you know, previous to that was... Uh, was if you looked at creation. Um, okay, Paul says this in Romans 1. Okay, Romans 1 and verse 20. He says, God's invisible attributes, like his eternal power and his divine nature, those have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that people are without excuse. Like you can, you can tell that God is real by looking at the universe, by looking at the complexity of all creation, the sophistication, the existence of beauty and universal morality, etc. There are things that, that are just plainly visible to you around you that testify clearly, indisputably to the reality of God. So that's what we got. We, we already knew that God was real and that there were certain aspects to him. He's powerful and he's beautiful and he's complex and he's intelligent and he's eternal, he's divine and he's unchangeable. He's undestroyable. Those are things that we can figure out by looking at creation. But creation doesn't show us what God... Uh, it doesn't show what God is like in, in a whole different kind of scale. Like, what, what's God's personality? What, what's God's intention? What's God's affection? Creation doesn't, if we just observe the, the natural world around us, we don't get an explanation to that. How would we find out about God's personality and his intentions and his affection? Well, he'd have to reveal that to us. God originally spoke about it to his prophets and the prophets would write it down and that became scripture. That's the Old Testament, right? But we never saw it. We never saw God walking around among us and then saw his personality and saw his intentions and saw his affections until the day that Jesus arrived, right? Hebrews 1.3 talks about Jesus. It says, uh, Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he, he upholds the universe by the word of his power, right? Philippians 2.6 says that uh, Jesus was in the form of God, but he didn't count that equality with God a thing to, to hold on to, a thing to be grasped, right? That Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature, that Jesus is, uh, he was in the form of God, and then he took on the form of man, right? So there was a, there was a divinity to Jesus. There was this, this uh, godness to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.4 it says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
So you get throughout scripture, you get, you get moments in the New Testament where Jesus enters the story, takes on human flesh, and then, and then the writers keep telling us over and over and over again that this is God. If you ever wanted to see his personality, his intentions, his affections, we just saw it. He, was, he took on flesh and he was walking among us. His, his glory dwelt in our midst. We see a man totally committed to righteousness and holiness and justice and wrath and grace and mercy and love and service, that somehow he was able to do all of those. We see not only what God is like, but, uh, but we as people, you know, we see what we were meant to be like now that we have a human being, Jesus Christ, who serves as an example for us. You have to reconcile that, right? Because every human being, every man and woman is made in the image of God. You get that all the way back from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. The first man, the first woman were created, Adam and Eve. And they were made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them, right? That's, uh, that's what happens. All human beings are made in the image of God, but it's not the same thing as when we say Jesus is the image of God. We're, we're made in the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. In the image of God is the image of God. There's a, there's a little bit of a difference there, right? We are an imitation We are stylized after or designed to be like he is. He is. 1 Corinthians 15 says that uh, like we're, we're made just like Adam and Eve were made. We're human beings. We were made from dust is the way that he says it. You know, just carbon atoms all scraped together and put together and there we are. And that's one kind of glory. But then... Jesus is, is not made from dust. He's a life-giving spirit. So he, he, was, he was this other thing that existed before the dust came together. He's more than just a man. He wasn't made in the image of God. He is the image of God that made us, that made all things. He's not an imitation. He's the authentic. He's the original. Now, Christ is also acclaimed in this, uh, in this little moment here as the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn over all creation, uh, because you know, all things were created by him, through him, for him, right? Now, we think firstborn uh, has to do with, you know, the physical birth process, that it's your birth order. It means that you're the first child, right? Your firstborn is your first child that, that you've had, right? Uh, and that, that meaning occurs in Luke 2, verse 7, that Jesus is the firstborn son of Mary. That's true. He is a firstborn, but that's not the way that Paul uses it here. That's not the only way that the term firstborn is used. It's not the way that it's used here. Um, Jesus, for, for instance, you, you should understand, he's not the firstborn physically over all creation. Jesus had, uh, had Mary as his mom, right? So she was born before he was born. And then Mary had a, had a set of parents. They were born before Mary was born. There were generations and generations of people that were born before Jesus was born. So calling him firstborn over all creation is not a chronological statement of when he was born. That's not the point. You can easily rule that out because people have existed for thousands of years before him. So for starters, you have to, you have to understand he's eternal, right? Uh, so when he's called the firstborn, what are we talking about? That's not a, a birth order thing. That's a supremacy thing, right? That's a rank. Uh, if, you, if you come from a culture where... Uh, the age of the children distinguishes their authority in the family, then you'll kind of vibe with this well. In my family, we had three sons. I'm the youngest of three sons 
which means in the family, I was nothing. I had, the, uh, I had two older brothers, and they were set to inherit everything. It's really the firstborn was ready to inherit everything, and then there were just two backup plans in case things went wrong. I'm the youngest of three boys, and I understand the authority thing. And you kind, of, kind of with any family, like when, you, you know, when the parents are going to leave, they're like the, they tell the oldest kid, you're in charge. You know, you're, you're the free labor of babysitting today. And so take care of the other kids. And then the other kids have to listen to the oldest child. And that's, that's related to the idea. This idea of firstborn is the supremacy idea, the, the authority and the sovereignty. That's what we're getting at when we say that Jesus is the firstborn. It's not to say he's a created being. Because some, some people will say he's like an angel. He was created. He's the firstborn over all creation. He was created before anything else. That's not what it's saying. It's talking about his supremacy, and you'll see it because it's, it says everything was made by him. He's not made. Everything was made by him. He's the maker. He is God. So he's eternal. He eternally existed as God. He, he chose to be born as a human being, you know, at some point. But he, was, he, he existed before that, right? The, the, the term firstborn, is, uh, it, it's a rank that someone gives. And even in... Uh, uh, in Psalm 89, God will do this. In, in Psalm 89, verse 27, here's what God says about King David. He says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Do you notice firstborn there is not talking about when he was physically born. It's talking about his rank, his authority, his, his sovereignty, supremacy, right? That's what, G, what God is getting at about David. And then it becomes this messianic implication, this little, this, this little hidden prophecy thing about Jesus, that he'll become the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. It's a rank. God can give it to someone, right? He, uh, God gives the title firstborn to Israel in Exodus 4.22 and in Jeremiah 31.9. Even though hundreds of nations existed before Israel existed, Israel started basically at Genesis 12. But nations and kingdoms and all that stuff, they all existed before Israel, and yet Israel can be called firstborn, because of rank. So the term firstborn isn't about physical order. It's, a, it's about the, the supremacy of Jesus over all creation. He is firstborn over all creation. He outranks all creation. He outranks whomever you look up to. He outranks uh, whatever you're excited about. He outranks it, right? He outranks anything in your life that motivates you, anything visible or invisible, tangible or intangible, any kind of power or authority or dominion, whatever it might be, he outranks it. He is greater than it. We go through this life thinking, you know, if, if I just had this one thing, or if I just did this one thing, or if I just experienced this one thing, or if I just became this one thing, then I'd be happy, and I'd be satisfied, and I'd be fulfilled. Right? What do you want to do before you die? We got stuff to say. I want to, I want to travel the world. Right? I want to, I want to meet my hero. I want to finish building this one thing. I want to get married. I want to have kids. These are the things I want to have before I die. I need to have this. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll, I'll live the life that's truly life. We think that that's what it's about. And everything else is rubbish in order that we can gain that. And yet Paul says Christ is supreme. He's firstborn over that. He is greater than that. We think if someone takes away that thing we want, 
in my life, if they take away my reputation and embarrass me, if they take away my money and I become poor, if they take away my job so I lose my status, if they take that thing away, then I'll be nothing. I crumble. I turn to ruin because we think that's the thing that's supreme. Whatever that thing is, that is what you believe a savior. That is the thing that, that you, you say holds the honor and the supremacy in your life. Whether we trust it or not, the reality is all glory and honor are due to Jesus. All authority belongs to him. He doesn't just have prominence within creation. It's not just he's the maker of all creation, but then he gets this, this special relationship, right? He's, uh, he's the uncreated one, and he, he rules over what's created. He didn't just create it all and walk away. He sustains it. He holds it all together. The universe is not self-sufficient uh, like a deistic model, right? Uh, it, it's not that he, he doesn't care about what he created. He cares very much about what he created. He's, he, he's the creator of all things, and then and all, when he made it, it was all good. Everything was working and it was very good. And then sin entered the world. You know, people messed up. They, they defied him. And that's when everything gets cursed because they were supposed to be the crown creation, Adam and Eve. They, they were the, the prize creation. And by sinning, everything was affected. All of creation then broke down, right? Death and destruction and decay, frustration and toil and chaos, they all came into the mix, and so Jesus does this, this thing here, right, where, uh, where he's supreme over all creation, and then all of creation got defaced by the power of sin, and so now he's starting something new. He's going to do something else to redeem creation. And that leads us kind of into that next point, that Jesus is supreme over the church. Jesus is supreme over the church. There's going to be this, this new creation movement, this renewing of things that are damaged by sin. He's going to take it and he's going to renew it and make it new again, right? Uh, verses 18 to 20 is about Jesus supreme over the church. This is what it says. And Jesus is the head of the body. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, meaning supreme. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I want you to take those clauses, look at all those different little phrases there, and I'll, let's, let's arrange them in a more chronological order, okay? We'll put them up on the screen, okay? Let's start with he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That looks like we should start there as the first chronological statement because it says he is the beginning, right? He created everything. I don't think that's where this line goes, Okay, uh, I think it starts with this line. In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's the eternalness, right? Before the beginning, you have all the fullness of God in Jesus. He is God. That, that's a circumlocution. That's, that's a way of using too many words to say something very simple. Jesus is God. But this, this little phrase here, it says, you know, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Like it's just a, a long way of saying a simple idea, right? Jesus is God. Now, next what he does is he makes peace by the blood of the cross, right? Jesus is God. He's eternally God. He makes peace by the blood of the cross. And then the next, the, the next chronological line is he is the beginning of something new, right? He's the firstborn from the dead, 
right? Death entered the world after sin entered the world, right? So he's God, sin entered the world. So he went and he died on the cross. And now he begins something new. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be supreme. And then the next line, through him uh, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And then the next line, is the the summary statement. He is the head of the church. He is the head of the church, right? It's this idea that like everything was broken. Everything got destroyed and, and, and dysfunctional because of sin. And so he came and paid the price of sin so that he could repair things and make them new again. Now, remember when mankind sinned, when human beings sinned, all of creation broke, right? Thorns and thistles came out of the ground and stuff. Death entered the world and it's just, that's where chaos was introduced. When Jesus redeems his people, that's the beginning of starting a chain reaction to redeem all of creation. Romans 8 says that all of creation is groaning and waiting for the children of God to, to be glorified, to be completely redeemed. For all, everyone throughout the history of mankind from, from the beginning till the end, to be saved, and then everything will be made new again. When, when people are made new, all of creation will follow. Just like when people fell into sin and destruction, all creation followed. Jesus is redeeming his own people. That's the church. And he's supreme in the church. Right? He's supreme over all things. It was all made by him, through him, for him. And then it all broke, and then he fixed it. Right? You can't have someone who's, who's a fellow sinner who's broken try to fix all the broken things. That's just it's not going to work. When two people fall into a mud puddle, one of the people in the mud puddle can't clean the other one that's in the mud puddle. You're both muddy. Someone who, who was the, the creator can put together the creation and re-put together the creation. He can make it new again. Now, th- this... Verses 18 to 20, this little strophe here, uh, is not to rehash Jesus' original title as, as the creator, but it's to emphasize his role as the redeemer, as the savior, the one that makes all things new again. Right? That first strophe, that the, the uh, verses 15 to 17, that little section there, is to say he's creator of everything. And, uh, and then here, he's saying he's, he's the beginning of recreating it all making it new again, redeeming it, giving back its value that was lost. If anyone's going to fix it, it's going to be the one that was able to make it brand new. He can make it new again, right? He's the only one that's powerful enough to do that. That means that Jesus is not an angel. He's not a, a created being. He's not a glorified heavenly spirit. He's not a partial embodiment of God. It's not like that. This is different than any other way that God ever dwelt among us, right? It's different than the way that God uh, dwelt in the Ark of the Covenant or the way that God dwelt in the tabernacle or the way that God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem. It's very different from that. It's different than how God uh, in his omnipresence fills heaven and earth. It's different than that. To say the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him is to say he is God. Not he's just a location of God, but he is God. He's not an avatar. He is. All the attributes and activities of God, namely his spirit, his word, his wisdom, his glory, his redemptive power, all of that are with Jesus, are in Jesus, 
because Jesus is God. The fullness of God, the original creator, came to fix the broken creation, to make it new again. Right? To, to end sin and death and decay and frustration and toil and to end chaos, to make peace instead of chaos. And he did that by dying on the cross. Sin had to be paid by the proper penalty, its proper wages, which is death. So he died. And then he also came back to life, didn't he? Right? It's, it's not just that like he died and was defeated. He died, and then when he came back to life, that was proof that he beat death. That he was victor over death. And now, because Jesus, the fullness of God, died on the cross... Penalty is paid for all sin, and the offer is made to all sinners. The offer being anyone, no matter how sinful, no matter how wicked and depraved, is offered freely a chance to repent of it all and turn back to God. You ever feel like you're broken? You ever feel like you're just a wreck? You're a mess? And you've, you've lost it? You don't even know what your purpose is? You don't know where you're going in your life? And you feel like you've done so much wrong? You've hurt people and you've you know, you've broken promises, all that kind of stuff. You, you have all of that. And you say, I wish I could start over. I wish I could be made new again. And then Jesus says, you can. All it takes is for someone to pay the price of everything you've done. And he says, I did that. And then it takes someone to just give you the supernatural empowerment to move in a better direction. And he does that. You realize the penalty of your sin. You know that Jesus paid it all and you just trust his way of life that it won't lead you to the same end that you led yourself. And so anyone who actually repents and trusts in him will start evidencing this, this very natural, consequent transformation. Right? The moment you place faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved. That's it. You're declared righteous. You're justified is the way that the, the Bible says it. That's the same word as righteousness. You are righteous ified. You're justified. And the way that you know you're justified is through your life, you can start seeing the evidence of it, the expression of it. And it's this, this process of making you holier. It's a process of, of, of transforming you from your old self to this new self, the way that you used to be, died. And then the way that Christ is, that's life. And you start turning toward that. That, that process is called sanctification, if you want the fancy theological term, Right? Sanctification is a consequence of just the fact that you are saved. You don't have to be sanctified in order to be saved. It's when you are saved, the result will show up as sanctification, right? You don't get sanctified by being punished more for your sin. Jesus paid it all. Sanctification is just the expression. It's just, it's just the natural product that happens in your life when you start trusting Jesus, because it, it just, it snowballs. It starts moving you into this momentum of trusting him more and more. It's a product of salvation, not a requisite for it. You don't have to be sanctified first before you can get into heaven. That's, that's heresy. If you've repented and believe in him, you're his now. Your destiny is secure. He paid it all. To, to depart from the body is to be with Christ, right? You're a, you're a new creation. The old has gone. And the new has come. The proof of that is evidenced in your life by your sanctification, by the process of becoming holy. That, that, that's how Jesus is the beginning of something new. 
That's how it is, right? For, for those of you who have come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, uh, it's, you've, from the moment that you met him and, and understood him and placed your trust fully in him, committed to him, something happened, and today you're not the same person as what you were in yesteryear. He's the beginning of a redeemed creation. Not just creation, which is now fallen creation, but he's the beginning of a redeemed creation. He's the beginning of something new. He's the firstborn from the dead. Supreme over all that, that ever lived and died because he died and he came back to life. That's how he reconciles people to himself, right? Now, this means that uh, you, we've established he's, he's supreme over everything and you can observe that most brightly by looking at the people that he saved, by looking at the people that he's transforming, right? Namely, believers, the church, right? When you look at the church, that's where you get the most manifest understanding that Jesus is beginning something new. He's making all things new. That's where you'll see it with your eyes. People's lives are transformed, and that assures you that all creation will be fixed, because once you become a Christian, you just start see, seeing things start coming back together. It's a process that takes your whole life. If you've been a Christian for three months and you're like, how come my life isn't all better now? Wait. Be patient, right? It took you this many years to get where you're at, and it's going to take you years to grow out of it, right? God is a God that, that doesn't just all of a sudden just jar you into a whole different thing. There's a process, He's the beginning of a new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. And his people, the church, also called the body of Christ, we're the, we're the display of it by our transformation. Jesus is not the Lord of some spiritual netherworld that's alien or hostile to this material realm, right? He took on the flesh of creation, which means creation was good. It's very good. And he could take it on because he's, he's going to redeem it. The gospel wasn't founded on some mythical salvation drama. No, it wasn't that. Agonizing suffering in history had to happen to achieve our redemption. If you look at, at who he was before he was born, and then what he became by being born, you go from the lofty heights of the fullness of God and his preeminence and his supremacy in heaven to then coming down to earth and dwelling among the dirt and being crushed and ripped and torn and nailed to bleed on a cross. It tells you of the cost and of the violence and of the sacrifice of heaven's throne viciously drowned in hell's savagery. The death of an obscure Jew on a seemingly God-forsaken hill in the backwater of the Roman Empire. Who would have thought it attracted no notice from the historians of the era, but it was the singular event that reconciles heaven and earth. And it testifies to his centrality and supremacy because those he redeemed, the church, they realize it and it shakes us to our core. And that's why we testify about it. God made peace with sinners through Jesus. It's not peace among equals. Just so you know, it's not peace among equals. It's not like that. It's peace established by a triumphant victor, Jesus, to whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. 
Jesus is the leader of a new way of living, a renewed creation. He's supreme over his people. He's head of the body. He's head of the church. And this gives a jarring insight to the purpose of church, since that's really what this conversation's about. What kind of church do we want to be? This, this tells us something, right? Church does not exist to meet the needs of its members. Just so you know. There's no reason for us to be shy about that. Church does not exist to meet the needs of its members. Church does not exist to ensure its own institutional survival. Church exists to fulfill the redemptive purposes of Christ, its head. Church exists to do what the head of the church wants to do. That's what a body should do. A body should carry out the will of what's going on in the head. Right? Imagine there you are and you want to do something with your body. You want to move it around. You want to pick something up. You want to, you want to turn on a light switch or close a door or something. You want to do something with the body, but then your body just decides not to act. You ever taken a nap, woken up, and then all the circulation is cut off in one of your limbs, and then you try to move it, and you can't? It's awful, right? And you sit there going like, you're supposed to do what my head tells you to do. And it just doesn't happen. And at that point, there's dysfunctionality. The church is the body of Christ. We're here to do what the head wants to do. And if ever we detour from that purpose, if ever we latch on to any other pursuit... There's dysfunction. Our purpose is to save people. It's to pour out sacrificial love, merciful and glorious invitation, selfless service to call sinners to repentance and faith. It's to point people to the Savior so that they would be his people, or as we say it, so that they would be the community. You ever been asked what you don't like about your church? Have you ever asked someone that, you know? What do you like about your church? What do you not like? You know, how, how should you answer that, right? The only answer to, to evaluate what you like or don't like about the church should be, does the body do what the head wants? That should be it. You could say, I, you know, I, I don't like the, uh, the guy that is on the band, or I don't like the guy that preaches, or I don't like the whatever. You could, you could do stuff like that. You could say all that. It's not the point. A body that doesn't listen to the head is defective. It's dysfunctional. Right? Ultimately, you're part of the church. The church is the body of Christ, and it applies directly to us as, uh, as, a, as a congregation, but it also applies to us as individuals. See, Jesus is supreme over creation. Jesus is supreme over the church that tells us something about the purpose of the church, and then it kind of brings us to our third point, which is that Jesus is supreme over you. That Jesus is supreme over you, right? Look at verses 21 to 23. The Apostle Paul says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Right? Paul's saying, like, this is what I'm about. This is what you're about. And he's talking, just, just to remind you, the you, you know, when he says, uh, and you who once were alienated, etc., the you that he's talking about, that's the Colossians in the first century. That's the original readers. We're eavesdropping in on their conversation. However, this applies to all Christians. He's, he's, he's making a theological statement, a universal one, right? 
Uh, it's, it's easy for us to read this letter and think it was, it was written about us. It's not. It's about the Colossians. But this gives us such an understanding of, of kind of what's true of every Christian. We were all hostile to God. We were alienated. We were doing evil deeds. And now we've been reconciled by the death of Jesus on the cross. Now there's peace with God. And now we can, we can approach him. And his whole, his whole intention is to present us holy and blameless and above reproach, Right? Uh, and so he, what Paul's doing, he's going to connect these ideas all back to the ideas that, that he already talked about earlier in this chapter in last week, uh, last week's passage, verses three through six. I'll put them up on the board for you. Verses three through six. If I want you to, to notice uh, what's going on in this passage. Okay, I'm going I'm to read this to you and, uh, uh, and we're going to kind of pick out certain words. Okay, I'll just emphasize certain words as we read them. Okay. Verse 3, it says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, I'm just keying in on these, uh, some of these things, okay? The Colossians, they heard the gospel, and they responded in faith, and so they have hope in Jesus. And hope doesn't mean like, oh, I really wish, I really want. That's the way we use hope right now. Like, I hope my sports team wins. You know, that's, that's what we do. I hope it doesn't rain today. We just say we eagerly want. That's how we use the word hope. That's not how it was back in that day. The word hope meant to wait. There wasn't an uncertainty, like, I don't know if it'll happen, but I really want it. The word hope back then meant to just eagerly wait. There was a certainty, not an uncertainty. I eagerly wait. You have an eager, an eager waiting in Jesus. An absolutely certain eager waiting in Jesus, a hope in Jesus. Meaning you know what's to come, eternity to come. You know that, that your sanctification will be fully realized once you just abandon the body of flesh that's, that's marred by sin. Once you die, you're with Christ and you don't wrestle with this problem anymore. Point I'm getting at, the reason why I, I, I nailed these, these, these words, heard and gospel and faith and hope. Look back at verses 21 to 23, right? And you who once were alienated on a hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so it's kind of this bookend. Whatever he started in verses 3 through 6, he's kind of tying up the same ideas here in verses 21 to 23. Right? He's saying that the stuff that you heard in the gospel and you believed, trusted, had faith in, that gave you hope, hold fast to those things. Don't steer away from those. Continue in that faith, in that trust. Right? Continue in that. That's what he says of the Colossians, because that's how the Colossians got it. They, they heard the gospel, they responded in faith. Awesome. That's not necessarily everyone's story in this room, right? So some of the people in this room, you're new to church, you haven't heard the gospel. So maybe, maybe you don't relate to them yet, not yet. Some of us, we've heard the gospel, just haven't responded in faith, haven't trusted it. 
Some of us, you know, we, we heard the gospel, we want to believe, but there's all this uncertainty. We don't feel like we have hope. That there's an absolute certainty, an, an eager waiting. Pay attention to what the Apostle Paul uh, warns us of here. If you want to be a believer, if you want to be holy and blameless and above reproach, you must continue in the faith. And that's like this weird thing. Like it sounds like if you don't continue in the faith, you lose your salvation. That's what it sounds like. And that's not the theological point Paul is making here. He's saying if you have saving faith, it means that you hold to it. Once saved, always saved. If you're ever like the type that, you know, your faith sprouts up, out of the soil of your heart and then eventually withers and dies or is choked out or is stolen away and you never really bore fruit, it didn't go all all the way to the end, then you never really had saving faith. There wasn't the good soil of your heart. Matthew 10.22 says, uh, the one who endures till the end is saved. Revelation 2 and 3, I think seven times it says, the one who overcomes is saved. Right? That's the idea that, uh, that... that if you turn to Jesus, hold fast to the gospel. Don't ever veer away from the central truth of the supremacy of Christ. Don't ever move away from that idea. Christians who take their salvation for granted, who think that forgiveness is, uh, is promised to them, and so that just becomes license for them to sin. You know, I'm forgiven, so I can kind of just do this. I'm forgiven, so don't judge me. I'm forgiven, so get off my back. I, you know, Jesus is going to forgive me, and so I can do what I want. When, when a Christian takes their salvation for granted and, uh, and, and sees forgiveness as a license for sin, that means they're not a Christian, right? It's a delusion to think that, there are, uh, that, uh, that there's some kind of faith out there that saves but doesn't have Jesus as supreme, as the reason, purpose, and value and worth of your life. Why would you reject him for something else? Because you find that to be of greater value and and greater purpose. It's a delusion to think that there are other means to God, other means of salvation, other means to heaven. To place faith in any other authority than the gospel, right? The word of God. To To place trust in any other authority than that, than the word of truth which you heard. To veer from that, to detour from that, it's to fall off the track of faith in Jesus because it's some other person's writing. It's some other tradition. It's some other thing going on. You end up thinking you can get to heaven if either you accomplish enough good stuff or you get punished enough uh, for your bad stuff. And you go, ah, as long as I do that, then, uh, then I'm good. I'll make it to heaven. It, it, it derails you into all sorts of, of heresy because it's not connected to Jesus, who is the only means of salvation. He's the only way that something can be made new again, that something can be unbroken. Christ alone offers a solution to human alienation in the world. Christ alone accomplishes the payment of sin's penalty. Christians who speak of theology and speak of Jesus and speak of godliness and yet confess no sin are not Christians. The one who's fully identified with God is fully identified with sinful humanity first. To say, I'm broken and I need a savior. It's at that starting point that the the testimony then proceeds and proclaims that Jesus shared our life experience. Jesus experienced our suffering. Jesus bore our sin. 
he endured the full brunt of the consequences of our sin and received its full wages, namely death. Right? If, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar. Love of God is not in you. First John. Faith, then, is not an exercise of morality to earn some kind of status. It's a response. Faith is always a response. Always it's a response to the salvation that we didn't deserve and yet received. Everything we do in obedience to God, everything we do in worship to God, everything we do in affection and adoration to God is a response. When someone thinks, you know, God, I've been good, so give me this. When someone thinks that, or when they think, God, I've been good, so why are you letting this bad thing happen to me? The moment we start thinking that way, we we reveal something about ourselves. We think that we're doing good to earn something from from God, that, that he's entitled, he owes us something because of our inherent goodness. It reveals a heart that says that we're doing good deeds to earn points with God. He owes us a prize. He owes us some protection from something we don't want. That's not the gospel. That's worldliness. That's how the world works and thinks, right? The gospel is that Jesus is God, and he he came in flesh. He loves you. He took your divine punishment, right? You screwed up. You can't save yourself. He saw it, and he just said, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to rescue you, right? He he did that because he he just wants you. Brokenness and all, he, he wants to save you, and then fix it, put it back together so that you can be with him for eternity. Everything you do, if you call yourself a Christian, has to be in response to that truth. Now, the only way you respond to that is if you keep that truth central. That Jesus remains supreme and in the center of all the teaching and of all the talking that happens about reality, about life within the church. Consider the ridiculousness. Just let's, let's, let's kind of land the plane here, right? But consider the ridiculousness of how Paul speaks of Jesus in this passage. He wrote Colossians in the year approximately 62 AD. Okay? How could claims of this magnitude be made about a man who died 30 years ago? When he wrote, he wrote to people who were alive at the time Jesus was alive, were eyewitnesses to some of the events of Jesus' life. Some of them were personal friends of Jesus and original disciples of Jesus. If your close friend died, or even if it's not your close friend, just a religious figure or something, if if your pastor died, 30 years later, would you be saying he was creator God, sovereign over every authority that exists in all creation? Would you say that? Of course not. That's psychotic. Right? But, and yet that's the context in which Paul writes. He's not trying to, like, this is not a clever scheme. If he's trying to trick people, that's a bad idea. Don't go, hey, remember that guy that you saw 30 years ago? He's God. Right? That's not a real compelling argument. That's where people go, you're crazy. And yet here's Paul, he's not shy about it. Look at how he's talking to eyewitnesses, he's talking to people who were loved ones of Jesus Christ, and he says, this was God preeminent, preexisting, creator of everything that's ever been made, including angels in heaven, 
and the dust of earth and the people that walk around. He's the creator of every single one of your souls. And he's the object of worship and he's greater than anything else. He's firstborn among creation, firstborn even among the dead. And he makes them new again. He gives them life again. Look at how Paul is so unashamed to say that because he's so absolutely convinced. He's not shy about it and he's not trying to manipulate anyone. Do you notice he's not trying to like trick you? He just comes out plainly stating it. And he's like, this is absolute truth. Didn't need to butter you up for it or anything like that. He states it as fact. And he states it with the assumption, if you notice his tone, he knows his audience agrees. They too were convinced Jesus is God and supreme and central. Everything that exists, exists by him, through him, for him. And even though it was cursed by sin, he made peace with it and he reconciled it, made it new again to himself. He's the beginning of a new creation, head of a redeemed people, the church. And he's the hope of every person who trusts in him. This wasn't a clever trick. It wasn't a fanatical idea. It's the absolute reality that Paul anchors as the central truth for every Christian. Some people will call Jesus a a political revolutionary, messianic uh, schemer, a charismatic holy man, a wandering peasant, a countercultural crusader, right? You you go into a, a, a class at school on religion and religious history and stuff like that. That's what you'll get. You'll get just this idea that Jesus was, you know, just a a really interesting guy. You know, very, very uh, influential person, right? And these are extremely small views of who he is. They're they're these tiny little containers that that can't capture the pre-existing, preeminent, uncreated one. Paul gives you no room to do that. When he talks about Jesus, he doesn't let you just walk away thinking, oh, he's a political revolutionary, gifted healer. He doesn't let you do that. Jesus was not just a Jewish reformer. He, he, he says Jesus was creator. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Savior. Jesus is supreme. And all reality revolves around that central truth. You either believe it or you don't. But if you do, it'll completely shake you to your core and recompose who you are and why you are. The tone of this passage isn't just description. Do you notice? He's not just writing like facts in an encyclopedia. It's exuberant praise, exultant celebration. The supremacy of Jesus isn't a factoid to just agree with. It's a call to worship, to let it resonate and reverberate in your heart in awesome wonder. Realizing the supremacy of Jesus explodes into praise and beams with thanksgiving. The God of all creation loves you, came after you, lived and died for you to rescue you and claim you and glorify you with his glory. Often we've become skillful singers of God's praise and forgotten the awe and wonder and adoration. Those who have no desire to sing and oftentimes will instead feel reservation about it, I deeply suspect have no idea who he is and what he's done. Jesus is supreme. I'm just going to I'm just going to shotgun six amazing thoughts that that just spill out from this. Jesus is supreme, right? And that we'll, we'll just end with that, right? If you're taking notes, good luck keeping up, right? But this these six thoughts will will set you completely apart from the way that the rest of the world 
thinks and lives, okay? Thought number one. If Jesus is the fullness of God, like it says in verses 15 and 19, then you will find fullness that you were meant for in nothing else but him. Right? Whatever you're chasing, thinking that that's what you need to be happy and satisfied and fulfilled is going to leave you broken and in despair. If Jesus is the fullness of God, Jesus is what you need to go after. And if you go after anything else, it will break you. Thought number two. If everything in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, powers, authorities, was created by him, like it says in verse 16, then nothing can overpower him. He made it. It can't thwart him. So whatever you fear can destroy you, humiliate you, permanently damage your sense of self, take away your value, remove you from what you're meant to be. It cannot overpower him, and he can eternally reconcile you to himself. What you were meant to be, he can get you there, no matter what stands in your way, even if it's the threat of death. You'll wonder if you can be so wicked that God will just give up, stop loving you because you screwed up so bad. And so you think, God probably doesn't love me anymore. You think that somehow you overpowered him. But you are not supreme. Nothing can sever his love for you. Never. Romans 8. Thought number three. God's plan to reconcile all things through Christ That was a plan that he made before the creation of the world. That's what it says in Ephesians 1. That plan never changed, right? He knew before he created anything that this is the way the course of events would go and that he would reconcile it all back to himself through his death on the cross. That means we have no need to look for any other means of salvation, any other means of making peace with God to make us acceptable to him. We sit there trying to offer God something. God, if I do this, Please make my life better. If I do all that he calls us to is to trust him. Just to have us acknowledge my way was broken. Your way is the true way. Let me go that way. And everything that I owe for all my failures and all my mistakes and all my misdeeds, someone has to pay for it. And thank you that Jesus did. Thought number four. The supremacy of Christ over all creation, the supremacy of Christ assures us of the sufficiency of Christ. We need him for salvation, nothing else. And we've got the word of Christ right before us, 66 books. You don't need anything else. You don't need a pope. You don't need some church tradition. You don't need some self-help book. You don't need a whole bunch of uh, a team of scientists, researchers, social, social scientists, psychologists, therapists, etc. I'm not saying that none of those fields are valid. I'm saying those aren't the answer to salvation. If you want to get to God, no one comes to the Father except through Him, Jesus, Him alone. Thought number five. If Christ sustains all of creation, then Christ can sustain you. He can provide for you whatever material need you have or whatever spiritual need you have. Right? He can supply you with a physical solution for your problem. Or better, he can supply you with the spiritual strength to get through it. 
oftentimes we think like because of the depression that we fall into and stuff, we say there's no way out. He can supply you. He can make all grace abound to you. He can give you the strength you need. Thought number six. Christ is supreme over all. And that supremacy is most visible in the church because Christ is the head of the church. The church metaphorically is his body. You can cut off any extremity of the body except the head and, and everything still lives. But the extremity that's been cut off from the head will surely and invariably wither and die. We don't hold fast to Jesus for status and power because of his supremacy. Mistakes have been made in the past by people who called it church and used it for power and status. That's not what we do. We hold fast to him for life and meaning. He's the head. It's because of his centrality and his supremacy that we hold fast to him. What is this church about? How do we become the church that God wants us to be? Well, it's going to start with Christ-centered prayer. To pray what Christ would want. To pray that people would get closer to and become more like Jesus. And then it's Christ-centered truth. That for all the things we teach here, we don't just teach morals. We don't just teach a whole bunch of philosophy or theology. We point you to the Savior. He's Jesus. He's supreme over creation. He's supreme over the church. He's supreme over you and me. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. God, I know I said a lot. And uh, Father, we just thank you that there's a lot that can be said. And I, I hope, Lord, that, that we got it. I don't even know if there's a way to do justice to how much ought to be said about the supremacy of Jesus and how that truth must be central to the teaching of the church. Because it can get real easy, Lord, to appeal to the masses and get super popular by just directing our teaching to focus on issues of the day, social justice, politics, art and expression, human rights, we could do it, Lord, and we can catch the ears of, of all sorts of people because they like those topics. And we do, if we do that, Lord, we would diminish the centrality of Jesus in what we say. We plead with you, God, that we would keep Christ in the center of our pulpit, Christ in the center of our discipleship groups. Christ in the center of our relationships. Christ in the center of our prayers. Christ in the center of our church. We latch on to him because he is supreme over all things and we dare not look to anything else for strength, for sustenance for meaning, for purpose, for destiny. We look to you. 
And we stand in awe and wonder that the pre-existing, preeminent, uncreated God of the universe loved us and came after us and lived and died for us to rescue us and to claim us and to glorify us with his glory. We pray, God, that that truth would shake us to the core and that every act of worship that we then render is not to somehow earn some status with you because we can't, you're supreme, but instead to respond to the awesome gift of salvation that you've given us in Christ. Center the truth in our church and be glorified. We trust in you, our God and Savior. May we be your people. All this we pray for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.